Amen. Well, we're going to uh, turn once again in our Bibles to 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 10. We've taken a couple weeks off from the 2 Corinthians series as we've looked at uh, a couple of different passages that deal with managing suffering and affliction uh, in light of, of uh, circumstances in our own congregation as well as around the world. But let's return now to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. I'll ask if you'll stand with me for the reading of God's holy word. Read 1 through 18 the last time. I'm going to read 7 through 18 this time, picking up where we left off. So standing, please, as you are able. Second Corinthians chapter 10, reading, beginning at verse 7. Hear the word of the Lord. Look at what is before your eyes. If anyone is confident that he is Christ's, let him remind himself that just as he is Christ's, so also are we. For even if I boast a little too much of our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you, I will not be ashamed. I do not want to appear to be frightening you with my letters. For they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. Let such a person understand that what we say by letter when absent, we do in present. Not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves, but when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they're without understanding. But we will not boast beyond limits, but will boast only with regard to the area of influence God assigned to us to reach even to you. For we are not overextending ourselves as though we did not reach you, for we were the first to come all the way to you with the gospel of Christ. We do not boast beyond limit in the labors of others. But our hope is that as your faith increases, our area of influence among you may be greatly enlarged so that we may preach the gospel in lands beyond you without boasting of work already done in another's, in another's area of influence. Let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. God adds his blessing to the reading and hearing of his holy word. Please do be seated. So about three weeks ago, we began looking at this chapter, 2 Corinthians chapter 10. And we're under the general heading of a warfare that is commendable. And you can tell even from that last verse there that I read in that chapter where I got this title from, Commendable Warfare. Paul is defending the way that he approached the Corinthian church and how he handled that situation. And he's recounting to them, basically, Here's, here are the principles by which I operated when I was engaging you in this area of spiritual warfare, which was really going on because of the divisions there, the immorality that was there, uh, the rebellion that was there, all those different things that were plaguing the Corinthian church. And Paul, as you may remember, those of you who were here three weeks ago, you will remember that Paul starts off in the first part of the chapter describing the warfare as being a, uh, it was a Christ-like endeavor. And that, that the battles that he fought were fought in, a, in Christ-likeness and it was not according to the flesh. You know, there are going to be and are many spiritual battles for the hearts of men and women, boys and girls. There are many battles for purity in the church. There's, there are battles for the testimony of Jesus Christ in the world. There are battles for faithfulness in your own heart. Fighting those battles after the example of Christ and by his power is the foundation of all of our strategy, if you'll allow me to use that term, and effort as we engage in those battles. But there is more. And Paul goes on here to describe that. Fighting the Lord's battles commendably requires confidence and requires integrity. And Paul, as he describes his actions, demonstrates those principles for us here. So we're going to 
uh, unpack that a little bit and look at fighting commendably before the Lord. And we're going to begin with the idea of fighting with confidence. And that's found in verses 7 through 10. Now, confidence can come from a lot of different places, can it not? You can, uh, if I went to any number of you and asked you to tell me what you do for a living, you'd tell me what you do for a living. And um, I might say, well, how long have you been doing that? And you'd tell me how long you've been doing that. I would have a, an idea based on how long you've been doing that, that you might have an inkling, an idea of some, com uh, of, uh, that you're good at it. You have confidence in that because of what you can do. It's, it's been fun to, uh, over the, the time that the Lucas X have been here, I'm not putting them up on a pedestal or anything, but Buck is really experienced at what he does in his excavation work and watching him train his boys to do that. Now I imagine, just as a by way of example, the guys, when you first got in a front end loader or, a, or any other piece of equipment, were you nervous? Maybe a little bit. Hope I don't run over anything. Tear out, tear down something I'm not supposed to tear down. Uh, don't want to break anything, right? But um, since those times, when the first time you got in the seat, I've watched you guys work. And as young as you are, you've had enough experience. I see you get in there. You have, I don't see any nerves. I see confidence to get in there. Not confidence because, well, you know, look at me, look what I can do. But confidence is, I know what the machine does. I know what I'm supposed to do. I know where I'm supposed to go. I've been trained well. I've been under good oversight, right? So I can go out in confidence and do the job. And it's that kind of, kind of confidence is a wonderful thing based upon our efforts and what we know. But Paul does not, and, and Paul, by the way, in other places, does not discount that. He will talk about it. In fact, we'll, I believe we're going to get to it a little bit later where he talks about... Uh, his own training and so on. He he's well aware that you know he sat at the feet of Gamaliel and you know he's a rabbi. He's got all that. He's got all the academic credentials there. But it's interesting that with the Corinthians here, he does not focus on those things primarily. I think they're underlying it. His life experience and so on, um, as far as what he's able to do and what he knows. He focuses upon some a couple of different things here that I want to make sure, get across to you, when you're fighting your battles in a Christ-like manner, your confidence, therefore, is, should not come from yourself or your experience or any of that sort of thing. It begins in verse 7. Uh, if anyone is confident that he is Christ, let him remind himself that just as he is Christ, so also are we. Paul finds his prime confidence in the fact that he is in relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. That he is Christ. There are others that are saying, oh, we're of Christ too. And Paul never disputes that somebody else actually might have something to say from the Lord to the Corinthian church. What he objects to is that in the process, those people are trying to throw Paul out as if his apostleship and his calling and his relationship mean nothing even though he was the one who was called to be there and not really them. We'll talk about the calling in a minute. But he starts off with this relationship. You know, and this relationship here is more than just connection and communion with Christ, though that's certainly part of it. It also has to do with service, a relationship that issues forth into action in the lives of others. It seems, if you look at verse 10, real quick, um, let me get here. they say, for they say, his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his spirit speech of no account. A lot of commentators, and I tend to agree with them, I, I think that it is likely that the remaining holdouts, at least, if not the ringleaders from the beginning, were likely elders or other office bearers within the church who wanted the uh, authority. They, were, they had gotten used to running things the way they wanted to run things. They didn't, they didn't uh, and remember a lot of, of the, uh, in the early church as 
officers were appointed. They were usually guys that had served in, a, in leadership positions in the synagogues, if they were from the Jews, or if they were Gentiles, um, other prominent guys of you know, means or whatever, uh, in terms of at least their experience or position or wisdom or whatever. And, you know, when you're experienced in a certain way, if I came on to Trevor's job site, one of his job sites, and saying, you know, I've, let me tell you, Trevor, you know, um, I've worked as a framer and so on. I think, you know, there's probably a better way you could do this, buddy. You know, yeah, I put myself through college, worked a few summers. Yeah, maybe I'll listen to what I have to say. Um, and after all, I've built a few things and I know how it goes. How do you think Trevor would think about that? Now, he would be justifiably annoyed with me, would he not? But now, Paul comes in. Paul, who is justified in making the suggestions, who has the calling of God upon his life, who has the equipping and the other experience, it's just that he hasn't been in Corinth before. He shows up to Corinth. They're used to running things a certain way in their lives and the way they like to do things and so on and so forth. And he comes in and goes, you know, we got some problems here. And they go, who do you think you are? In one respect, you can almost understand why they felt the way that they did. However, they're still not justified because of who Paul was and his calling and so on. You know, <laughs> Paul will say in chapter 11, and we'll look at this more as we get there, of course, but in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 5, Paul says, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. And though that may not come across in the English text too well, um, I am fairly certain that, that that phrase is dripping with sarcasm. <laughs> that these guys who are assuming to themselves a power and authority that they don't have uh, from, certainly not from the rest of the church, Paul was the one who was anointed and had hands laid upon to go out and minister to the Gentiles and establish churches. Not them. And yet they were saying, no, we're the ones who sent by God here. And we're better than this. And there's some, several things that they, they have complaints about that they want, they like to have things a certain way, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. Paul's confidence uh, is not that uh, he looks up and goes, oh yeah, I'm a better speaker or I know more, or whatever. He's like, I have just as much a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, and therefore I am not inferior in any way. Now, some might look at that and go, well, Paul's kind of blowing his own horn here, isn't he? And yet, what does that tell you about the nature of the relationship and calling that we have of God to serve him. Now, those of you who are office bearers, I want you to particularly take this to heart, but even if you're not an office bearer, within your various spheres of life, whether it's a, a parent, uh, with your children, a spouse, um, in, in all of those areas where the Lord has given you uh, a particular area of authority and opportunity to express that authority, be aware that um, you need to take into account that the relationship with Christ is the primary thing. If you do that, then you will, you will focus less as, I mean, really, though Paul talked about his office, and that, okay, I'm, I'm the apostle, you know, over and over again in his letters, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, over and over and over again. Um, nonetheless, though he looked at that, it was like, okay, that's the office, but it's, it's the new life in Christ that's the principal thing. I mean, you could say, you know, I'm a husband, I'm a boss, I'm, I'm a church officer, whatever. Okay, great, noted. Now, what's my walk with Christ like? And recognizing that those you're ministering to, it's all about their relationship with Christ too. And in Christ, there's, you know, kind of the rank thing kind of goes away because of our unity in him. 
So that brings some humility into it. The fellows that he's working against there in Corinth, there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of humility there. It's like, see, we want the, we want the position, we want the power, and everybody else better knuckle down. And it caused all kinds of problems in the church, and as Paul tries to deal with it, they're pushing back. His confidence, however, is in a relationship, is in his relationship with Jesus Christ. Beyond the relationship, look at verses 8 through 10. Relationship that leads into service. Yeah, because out of that relationship, he also has a specific calling uh, to the work. So in verse 8, If I boast a little too much of our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and for not destroying you, he says, um, I will not be ashamed. It's... uh, it's interesting uh, here. I'll come back to verse 7 in a second. But it's obvious that what Paul has done in the Corinthian church has been for their good. He has no shame in this. In other words, say, you'll forgive me if I mention that the Lord has put me in this position of authority. Because what has happened as a result of that is the benefit of the church, the growth of the church, the establishment of the church. And, and so I, he says, I'm not ashamed of that. Because my, author, my calling, he says, is one that is authoritative. Is an authoritative calling. When you're fighting the battles that you're fighting, whether they're public or private, those to fight them commendably means to fight them with confidence in that relationship with Christ and knowing that the Lord has given you the authority to resist evil, to resist temptation, to resist the devil, and to speak into the world the glories and the demands of our King. You have that authority. So don't be afraid to use it. And don't be afraid to say, you know, I'm a servant of the King. So thus, I don't feel badly about saying to you, thus says the Lord. Think also about this authoritative calling in that it's not just that you have the right to do it, but it also is a wonderful thing in that it is an effective calling. Now, look at verse 7. Another little bit of, uh, maybe not quite dripping as much in sarcasm, but there is some... uh, a little bit of a well duh kind of feel to this first sentence here. Look at what is before your eyes. It looks very um, like like just a standard command. All right, pay attention now. All right, well there is a pay attention thing there, but essentially what he is saying here is it should be obvious if you've been paying attention that what God has done in and through me is of him. And the implication clearly is that some haven't been paying attention, at least not very well. And even in verse 9, where he says, I don't want to appear to be frightening you with your letters, with my letters. Again, I read this and in the tenor of everything else, I don't see, you know, I, guys, I, I really don't want to frighten you. I see... I don't want to be frightening you with my letters, you know, like, yeah, those are so bad. <laughs> it's kind of, there's a little bit of sarcasm in here as well. He's, he's, in a sense, he's trying to show not just wrong in the sense of how, uh, you know, the, the sinful aspects of rebellion and so on, but just how utterly ridiculous it is to look at the Apostle Paul and his ministry in Corinth and go, well, we got a lot of problems with this guy. Pay attention. What have you seen in the lives of the Corinthian believers? What have you seen in the lives in, as far as the testimony of Jesus Christ in Corinth? The evidence is there. So why are you fighting it? That's kind of the idea here. I, I don't want to, I better say this here at this point. I, I don't want to give the impression that I think uh, commendable warfare is, should be characterized by sarcasm. Um, But nonetheless, there is an element of going into this with a confidence that says, I know what God has done. I know it's true. Let's get to it and, you know, and quit griping about it. 
If you don't like what God has to say, take it up with him. But I am not apologetic for the cause of Jesus Christ. Amen. That is essentially what Paul says. But he refers to um, some of these that are, are uh, pushing back against him. In verse 10, it says, for they say. Now, some uh, earlier manuscripts read, he says, which would... If, that's, uh, if that is uh, closer to the original, would indicate that it's probably one guy who's kind of holding out as a ringleader of those who want to push back against Paul. We looked at it uh, last time, and even we looked at this passage and, uh, even before, that a lot had been done, right? Uh, Paul was so encouraged that many had repented and they had really gotten their act together and were back on board with recognizing the, you know, the Lord's servant and everything else. But there, Paul's still dealing here with, in this final letter to them uh, with those who are holdouts. If it is he says, well then uh, it can be taken that way. But uh, either whether it's he or if it's a smaller group, either way, uh, there you could just, he's kind of quoting them here. Remember, um, how were the letters of the apostles distributed? They were sent out usually as a circular letter, particularly in Asia Minor. Now, Corinth, it would have been just to them. But when letters came, they would be read before the church, letters from the apostles. So you can just kind of picture in your mind's eye, as when he says, for they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account, that they, well, okay, I guess we'll read this letter and last time we read it, it sure made us mad, but you know, all right, we'll read this, but yeah, there's a lot of good stuff in here, but I mean, look at, consider the source. He's just kind of flaky. Don't really, we can disregard what he says here. Talk about arrogant. I mean, it really goes back to the prior thoughts that Paul was dealing with, that his initial gentleness with them was taken as just being vacillating and weak. Um, the bodily presence, by the way, being weak is not, not so much, um, you know, like physically he wasn't strong. It was more, it was unimpressive. He just, uh, he didn't have a, a lot of curb appeal when it came to his public image. Ah, not much there uh, to be taken care of. And his speech, ah, speech of no account. Remember that in that day, rhetoricians were highly regarded. And uh, one of the reasons the, that Apollos had such a great following because he was eloquent and, and gifted as a speaker. Could really, really, I would have loved to have heard Apollos speak. Um, just to see what he did as a premier example of the of a of a uh, Greek rhetorician, <clears throat> they prided themselves in the flash, prided themselves in their ability to use their bag of tricks to manipulate and get whatever reaction they would want out of an audience, good, bad, or indifferent. Didn't matter. What mattered was were they effective in doing it. And these guys, man, the eloquence and 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 all of that was high watermark of, in human history. And yet, for most of it, substantively, it was empty. But Paul, as we know from other places, says, I didn't come among you with a lot of eloquent speech. I came among you and I preached Jesus Christ and Him crucified. He was, he was a plain speaker. And to these Greek guys, remember, they're in Greece. At, 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 in, the, in the heart of the cultural center of the world. And here comes this rough and ready tent maker who plain, plainly talks about the Lord Jesus Christ and the crucifixion without a lot of bells and whistles, without a lot of fireworks and eloquence and everything else, but just plain speech, hard-hitting stuff, but it was of no account because he didn't add up to their standard. They wanted more flash than substance. He just didn't add up to their idea of what an apostle should look like or talk like. 
Now think about that for a minute. Just I'm trying not to be too much of a rabbit trail here, but why is it that through the years, so many of these uh, false prophets, false teachers, under the guise of being ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ, uh, amass millions of dollars and millions of followers and write all their books and they have their big churches and their big crusades and everything else that goes on and everything is just, it's, it, it, it's flash, it's blitz, it's bling, it's all of that stuff, but it's empty. People's lives are destroyed by it, but people still follow them. People still send them their money. People still, still uh, buy their books. People still do all that stuff, even though there's nothing in there that what bears up under the weight of scriptural criteria for what's true. Why is that? Because I think it's the nature of our hearts that we want, we want a king that adds up to our ideal. Right? Um, king David, when he was anointed to be king, his brothers were all, were all frustrated by that. But even Samuel, the prophet, right? What happened? Okay, surely, Lord, this guy, he's tall, he's good looking, strong. His, his brother, oh yeah, this must be the guy. Nope, not him. And walked right down to the youngest, the least important in his father's house. The Lord doesn't work in the way that we work. And Paul is reminding them here that it's not about the flash, it's about the substance. And so when you engage in warfare that is commendable, your job is not to get up there and be as clever and be as bright and be as, as filled with a wow factor as you possibly can in order to win people to, to the Lord. Your job is to faithfully witness to the hope that lies within you. If you're an office bearer, your job is to do those things under that authoritative calling to minister within the local assembly. In your, in your family, your home as, as, as uh, spouse, husband, as parents, you're not there to be clever. You're there to be true to the Lord Jesus Christ. That is commendable warfare. Uh, not slaying the dragon with some witty, clever thing. Um, just somewhere out there, I'm sure, there's the perfect meme that will answer all questions. But until it's found, just stick with what God has said. That's faithfulness in your warfare. Well, so we, have, we approach these battles with confidence. Confidence in that relationship and confidence in our calling. But also then... Going into it confidently because of Christ and because of that calling, there definitely needs to be some integrity that is involved in our warfare. So take a look at verse 11. Verse 11 says, Let such a person, whether it's they or singular, let such a person understand that what we say by letter when absent, we do when present. It, it, it's really easy Right to be, uh, we're all familiar these days. I think with the whole idea of keyboard warriors online. You know, people get out there and they can say all kinds of things. They're bold. They're out there. They're saying all this stuff. You know why? Because they're in the safety of their living room uh, or basement or whatever, um, with no one to call into account on it, and they can uh, present themselves however they wish. But Paul is not a keyboard warrior. Even if he'd had a keyboard, he wouldn't be a keyboard warrior. Paul says, what I am in these letters, that's what I am for real. And that, that aspect is so simple, is it not? But the Lord calls upon us all to be sincere in uh, who we are before him and before the world. Now, sincere... Those of you who've been around me long enough will already know this story is coming, um, but, or illustration is coming. Um, but uh, nonetheless, um, many of you are new, so happy to inflict it upon you. Um, when I say sincere, I'm not just talking with the usual connotation that it has 
so often in English these days, which just means, uh, you know, I really mean uh, what I'm saying or, or I feel really deeply about it. Uh, this is a word that comes from two Latin words, sincere. Sin meaning without. Sere, it means wax in Latin. So when we say, when you say sincerely yours, you're saying without waxly yours, if you were to translate it. It comes from the ancient Roman practice of evaluating the nature of statuary, particularly marble statuary. Now, you get the, the equivalent of the used car salesman, uh, if any of you are used car salesmen, I, my apologies, but uh, the used car salesman among, uh, among garden statues and, uh, uh, and, and so on, fountains, and I don't know if they had little garden gnomes then that they did, but nonetheless, they would make things out of marble. And when they made them out of marble, if they were less than reputable, if they were unscrupulous, they would use poor quality marble that was filled with cracks. And what do you think they would put in the cracks of this white marble? They'd slather it full of wax. Because white wax, when it's in there, it's all hardened, you've got to polish it up, it looks like marble. And they'd put it out there on their statue lot uh, for people to come by and buy a fountain or buy a statue or whatever for their for their courtyard, and they'd hide it off in a, these guys off in a, in the, uh, in a shady spot somewhere. And, oh, that's beautiful, look at that, marvelous. And then people buy it, take it home, stick it in their courtyard where the sun's shining down, all the wax would melt, and you'd have this ugly, cracked stuff there. So it became, came to be known um, that it's kind of like we have USDA choice or whatever, you know, AAA rating, whatever. Uh, statuary would be, regarded as of high quality if, if it was without wax. In other words, it was solid through and through. It was what it appeared to be. Paul was sincere in that sense. He was exactly what he appeared to be. If he appeared to be rough and tumble, direct, powerful and weighty in his letters, that's exactly what he was in person. Still without all the flash and stuff. He didn't care about that. He was real. And if you're going to be a, 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 war, a warrior for Christ in whatever sphere you're in, in a commendable fashion, you need to be real. You need to be genuine through and through without wax. That when heat comes up, when temptation arises, that all that, that uh, good looking stuff that you put out there of the world melts away and the ugly you is revealed. Be sincere without wax. That is the nature of your integrity. We all talk about integrity a lot. I'm a man of integrity. What are you for real? Are you sincere? Secondly, this integrity um, we see in verse 12. Um, I'm, go I'm going to uh, do a little play on words here, but I think it will work in light of what verse 12 says. Uh, let's read it first, and then I'll tell you what I'm getting at here. Not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves, when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. Your integrity needs to be incomparable. It really needs to be outstanding, but it's also incomparable in that it's not about integrity that you're holding yourself up against to compare with somebody else. I want you to think about the words of the Apostle James Chapter one, what was going on with these guys? Well, look, see, I'm better than this. I'm better than that. And, and uh, compared to Paul, I'm a much better speaker and I, blah, 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 blah. Look what James says in chapter one, verse 22. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. It's really easy to look around and see other people that in your mind are inferior to you. And that's what they were doing to Paul. Because they didn't want to listen to what he had to say. But they were, it was clear from under their, that under their leadership, the church in Corinth was a mess. But as Paul came in and addressed them biblically, things changed. 
They didn't like it. But they were still intent upon comparing themselves with each other. And Paul says, anybody who does that is without understanding. Your integrity is what it is. You are what you are. When you look at yourself in the mirror in the morning, do you pay attention to what you see there or do you forget about it and go on in blissful ignorance um, thinking that the way you look is fine? Sometimes, you know, you go around in malls and in stores and just the world in general and you look at people and wonder, did they look in the mirror this morning? I don't know. And if they did, why did they think that was okay to go out? <laughs> like, you know, sometimes we have those thoughts. And it's really easy to look at other people and go, yeah. And then right about that time, then I hear from my wife, are you really going to wear that tie with that <laughs> shirt or whatever? Right, what's, what's wrong with that? You know, um, it's so easy to see the faults in everybody else and not see them in ourselves. Our integrity is not about comparing with you. All right, I got a, I've got a better looking, well, of course I have a better looking tie on than you do because you don't have a tie. So my tie is better looking than yours. So clearly I'm superior. Right? Sometimes we are that stupid in the way that we go through life and look at other people and regard ourselves. And we wouldn't do it that obviously, perhaps. But nonetheless, that can be the attitude of our hearts. Paul says, this is not the way I operate. I'm not comparing myself with them. I'm not comparing myself with anybody. I'm just looking at Christ, and that's who I'm serving. And my integrity is that way. I'm not trying to make myself better than anybody else. In verses 13 and 14, he goes on to talk about this integrity. Integrity that here, I believe, is, is justified. Now, um, you might think about uh, Job here at this point, and we're actually going to uh, think about him in just a little bit as well. Job's friends didn't think Job's assertions that he had integrity and that everything was great with him were justified, did they? They thought he had sinned. They thought he had some other issues. And that's why he was being punished, and therefore he had no right to say, I am holding on to my integrity. I am blameless. But take a look here at the foundation of an, of an integrity that is justified. Not just I want to believe it. Not just I'm asserting it. But in verse 13, it says, We will not boast beyond limits, but will boast only with regard to the area of influence God assigned to us to reach even to you. And you go, what are you talking about? An integrity that's justified here. What is Paul asserting? I have the right to come to you, and what I've done is right and proper among you, and the results are obvious if you're just paying attention. Paul is saying, I'm not just going out in the world and saying everything that I ever said and, and, and have ever done in any sphere of life or anything else is not to be called into question. After all, as I've heard, sad to say, I, I've heard pastors stand up and say, I'm your man of God, whatever you... Whatever I say to you, you have to do. I've heard pastors say that. That's not what Paul is saying at all. But he's saying, in regard to the commission that I have from God to reach out to you, this is the sphere God has given me. This is where I've acted. This is what I've done there. And therefore, I am justified in saying to you and asserting that I have walked with integrity before you. And before God, in fulfilling the duties that he gave me to do among you, by commission, I am justified in holding that view. He doesn't try to, in other words, take on somebody else's job. He's focusing only on his own. You know, in a spiritual battle, just as in a physical one, it's easy to become a legend in your own mind. The false apostles that Paul was dealing with here, they had no real authority in the church beyond what they had arrogated to themselves. They decided that they could do what they wanted to do, and so they went about to do it. But they had no real authority. They just wanted the position. Paul says, no, 
I've had to, I have the position by the hand of God, this is my commission, and I have acted appropriately within that sphere. And not only by this commission, but also in verse 14, we see we're not overextending ourselves as though we did not reach you. In other words, the, again, the evidence is there. We came to you. We did this. This was established. So not only is integrity by the fact that he's been commissioned to work there, just he's just this uh, insistence upon his integrity is justified by the actual history of what happened. I want you to think about something. And I think this I could draw this principle out from this this text here. Your current testimony. Your current testimony finds validation from the work of the past. Think about that for a minute. Your current testimony, who you are, how you're known, it's, it's not that you're living in the past, but what you say, what you do, is validated by what you have said and what you have done. Now I want you to think about that going forward. That your testimony a year from now, five years from now, ten years from now, however the Lord tarries and allows you to remain on this earth, will be validated by what you're doing now. Or invalidated, as the case may be. Paul is saying, my work, what I have done, demonstrates the reality of my commission, the reality of my authority, the reality of the integrity that I've had in fulfilling those things before God. Think about that when you're engaged in warfare. How are you engaging in this? And be aware, uh, if you're like me, and uh, I rather suspect you are, that you haven't done everything perfectly in the past. And it does have an impact upon how people view you and how much confidence you have in going forward and doing the job now. Sometimes it's of such a nature that it can really throw a monkey wrench into what you're doing as far as people are concerned in your testimony. So walk carefully, walk discreetly. And if you've had lots of issues in the past that somebody could go, well, yeah, well, he was this and he was that and he was the other thing. It's like, well, okay, there it is. The passage of time will help and consistent walking now before the Lord in righteousness will help going forward. That may be the best you can do. But it is something you can do. And that is where you really can have your integrity grounded. All right, I'm, by God's grace, I'm doing the right thing. If you messed up in the past, make it right as best you can. Going forward, fulfill the commission with honor and grace and righteousness. So, this integrity, it's sincere. It's incomparable. And it is justified by commission and history. It's also an integrity. Look at verses 15 and 16. An integrity that is driven. Paul is not just wanting to have a good name just to have a good name. Just so that he can get an Apostle of the Year plaque put on his wall. He is driven by a desire for uh, those to whom he is ministering. And we see that in verse 15 and 16. We do not boast beyond limit in the labors of others. In other words, it's where they're commendable, they're commendable. Um, not going to be false about it. If they're not commendable, they're not commendable. It's just going to be honest about others' work. But our hope is that as your faith increases, our area of influence among you may be greatly enlarged so that we may preach the gospel in lands beyond you without boasting of work already done in another's area of influence couple of things here. First of all, he's driven by a desire for the good of others. Boasting beyond limit. I mean, he's happy. Um, you know, you, you might remember from uh, uh, Romans when he was in prison there. You know, there were those that were preaching Christ in an effort to hurt Paul. Which I always thought was some of the most bizarre reasoning that somebody would, oh, I'm going to go out and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ so I can hurt Paul. And I've never quite understood how that was supposed to work. Um, but nonetheless, Paul was like, if they're preaching Christ, I'm happy. 
So Paul is content for, it's not that he's saying that these guys that want to have positions of influence uh, in the church of Corinth should never be allowed to, and that they have nothing to say. That's not the point. He desires the good of others. He knows he can't be at Corinth all the time. He's writing not there. He wants to be there, but can't be there at the moment. So that's why he's writing. So, you know, he doesn't expect everybody to just hang fire and wait till he gets there before uh, um, the word can be preached or ministry can be done. He knows that the Lord can raise up others. So he's driven by that desire for the good of others. He's, desire, he's also driven by this desire for even more ministry among them or in the, in the present place. Now, he wants to expand his ministry, but I think it's really interesting here. Um, commentator uh, RBG Tasker made the observation that Paul was not willing to leave, and he used the term cancer, to leave this cancer behind of uh, this festering little rebellious cell here. He wasn't willing to leave that behind without addressing it. So he wants a greater, he wants, he wants more uh, opportunity. He's driven by a desire to make sure that, uh, as what we would say in the, in the fire world, that the fire is dead out. That there's nothing smoldering down deep underneath. He wants it all out. So he's driven by that desire. And then in verse 16, he's driven by even more, a uh, desire for even more ministry in other places beyond them, which he would eventually do. So this, his desire to approach this ministry um, from a position of integrity, I, it, it, I think it should be clear to everybody that if these things are going to take place, if he's going to be able to work with others and encourage them in good work, if he's going to... Uh, uh, fulfill all that needs to be done in that place and then take the gospel to other places. It has to be done from a position of genuine integrity before the Lord, that he is what he appears to be, that he speaks the truth uh, authoritatively on the basis of commission and with the confidence that, yes, God has worked through him to accomplish much in that place so that now he has the courage to go and continue on in other places. And that brings me finally to verses 17 and 18. As we fight our battles, we need to be fighting with an integrity that is commendable in the sight of God. But the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. It seems to be a quote, uh, that uh, commonly known quote that he's uh, reciting there. And then he explains, for it is not the one who commends himself who is approved. Right? People can blow their own horns all they want. But it is the one whom the Lord commends that is approved. In the book of Job, chapter 42, remember Job has been talking about his integrity. Finally, he has this discussion with the Lord that he'd been asking for. I want to take this to the Lord. And he has the, the, uh, the discussion with the Lord and the Lord clears up his thinking a little bit on some things. And Job ends up going, you know, I'm putting my hand over my mouth and I'm not going to say anything else. A wise move on his part. But, you know, you look at that and as the, as the Lord kind of rebukes Job a few, uh, a little bit, Job never, I mean, the Lord never disputes Job's claims about his integrity. Did you ever notice that? Never does. And in fact, in chapter 42, <clears throat> he says to the three friends, who had some, some sound theology, but really bad application. Um, says to them, Now therefore, take seven bulls and seven rams, and go to my servant Job, and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. For you have not spoken to me what is right, as my servant Job has. Do you think the Lord thought that Job's, in a sense, a spiritual battle with his friends there and with his own heart? Do you think that Job's integrity was commendable before the Lord? I think so. That is what, that's the kind of integrity that we need to have. Not on boasting in anything else, but 
just boasting in the Lord himself. And the word boast, by the way, it's going to show up numerous times all through chapter 11. We're going to start looking at that chapter, God willing, next week. But Job's, uh, Job's integrity was based in the Lord. Paul's integrity was based in his devotion to and connection with, his relationship with, and his service for the Lord. And it was all about the Lord and nothing else. Not him, not, him, not comparing himself anywhere else. If you wish to fight commendably before the Lord in whatever sphere the Lord has placed you, you must do so with Christ-likeness, with confidence, and with great integrity, with good character, through and through, that you are what you appear to be, and that what you, what you are and what you appear to be are godly. You must fight the Lord's battles in a way that is praiseworthy by Him, regardless of the opinions of a world or even professing believers who would strive against you. So engage in commendable warfare for the Lord's glory. Engage in that commendable warfare for the effectiveness of your own testimony. Do not grow weary in doing well by His grace. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for the blessing that we have in this passage. So many lessons to, to glean here from the Apostle's experience. The assertions that he makes regarding his own ministry and integrity before you. Lord, may we be able to make these same assertions rightly and honestly before you and before one another. That we do things in a Christ-like way. That we are confident in Christ and not in ourselves. That we, Lord, walk in a sincere, godly fashion before you and before the world. So that we will be commendable by you. Lord, we long for the day. When we stand before you and hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant, enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. I pray, Lord God, that we would all hear those words and that you would be glorified by the life and the testimony and the labors and the warfare that take us to that point by your grace. We pray these things in the blessed name of our 